You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Recently, we've been revisiting topics and discussions we used to have a lot in this region, but have faded away from our collective conversation in recent years. Today, we're going to look back at one of the most controversial stories in Detroit's modern history, the legacy and trial of former Detroit Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick. The sharp and charismatic young mayor rose to local and national prominence really quickly, and maybe too quickly. Kilpatrick seemed to have a perception of himself that he was somehow untouchable or infallible, and it landed him in a heap of trouble. He was charged and convicted with 24 felony counts, including mail fraud, wire fraud, and racketeering. All that happened while he was mayor. Kilpatrick didn't take a plea deal that he was offered, and he was found guilty and sentenced to 28 years in federal prison. It was and is an unbelievably long time without precedent for an elected official to serve for their crime. So was that sentence the right thing to do? Was it too stringent? Was it fair? Is Kwame Kilpatrick a threat to society, someone we have to have off of the streets and in a prison because we fear for our safety? Or was Kwame Kilpatrick sentenced because we were just angry at him? We were mad that he had betrayed the public trust so badly, and we somehow believe that that betrayal is worthy of a nearly three decades long prison sentence. I think this is a really interesting issue, and it's something that I hear people talking about from time to time in our community, even today. It sort of bubbles up in places. Does it make sense to take someone who had the obvious intelligence, the obvious commitment to Detroit that someone like Kwame Kilpatrick had, and remove him from the community for almost three decades to say that this is a person who has nothing else to contribute to our community, that somehow we have to keep him away from us. I'm going to spend the rest of the time today talking about the tensions between crime and punishment, the tensions between justice and punishment. Is it right to take somebody, even someone who did as many things as Kwame Kilpatrick did, and just lock him away pretty much for the rest of his productive life? What do you think about Kwame's sentence. Does that punishment fit the crime? Do you think Kwame could come back and have some sort of productive life here in Detroit or elsewhere, but will never get that chance because of the sentence that he was given? As always, the number on the phones to join the conversation is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there. Go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. The other thing that lurks in the background of this conversation, I believe, of course, is race. Would Kwame Kilpatrick have faced as stern a punishment if he weren't an African-American, if he weren't the African-American mayor of a city that's so heavily African-American. I hear people asking those kinds of questions as well. I really want to know what the listeners think about those issues uh, the rest of the hour here. But first, joining us to talk about this is Matthew Van Meter. He's an author and teacher at the College for Creative Studies. He has written about the overly punitive nature of federally, federal sentencing law, currently is at work on a book about a 1968 Supreme Court case. Matthew, welcome to Detroit Today. Yeah, hi, Stephen. Good morning. Yes. So let's just start with uh, the question I asked uh, the listeners there. Is this 
an appropriate sentence? Is this an appropriate way to treat somebody who did what Kwame Kilpatrick did or was convicted of doing? Uh, or is this overly punitive? Is this writing off the potential for someone who has made a mistake, committed some crimes, to come back and make a more different kind of, I guess, contribution to their community? Yeah, I guess the the question's really interesting because, and, and I'm not going to pretend to be, you know, in some arbiter uh, of justice here. I, I have no idea what would be an appropriate sentence for Kwame Kilpatrick, given all that he did. But it raises a really interesting conversation for me about two things. The first is, you know, what, what is the purpose of our system of punishment, right? So once somebody's been found guilty, right, the the the, the judicial system has done its job, mm-hmm. uh, and and then and then there's a question about how we punish them and what that punishment is for. And there's a debate that's been going on for in this country for a long time between uh, punishment as a form of retribution um, and punishment as as a an opportunity. For, for growth or for reconciliation with the community mm-hmm. um, or, or for, um, for some, kind of, uh, uh, some kind of coming back into the community as a productive member. And th- this debate's been going on for forever, and the pendulum has sort of swung back and forth between those poles. And where we are and have been since the 1980s been um, very far on, the, on the, the side of retribution. And and this idea of of retribution in 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 Kwame's case, it's almost uh, it's almost a foregone conclusion that there is no there is no hope for rehab or redemption there. When you sentence somebody who is the age he was when he was sentenced to twenty eight years in prison, you're saying he he won't rejoin us uh, when in his productive years, right? He will be. Uh, a senior citizen, pretty much when when he gets out of um, when he gets out of prison. I mean, it's it's as though the system itself, and and in federal court, of course, uh, these things are all handled by guidelines. Uh, judges have less discretion than they would certainly at the state level. I mean, it's almost as if it's set up to say, "This is it. You're 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 done," and we don't believe you have any any productive value in the future. Yeah, I think there are a couple of things to say about that. The first is, um, uh, I mean, the courts are not allowed to take this person's age into account. So, right. so the yes, on a, on a purely practical level, yeah, does this does this put Kwame behind bars until a time of his life where he'll, he would probably no longer be capable of of, of these sorts of actions, um, as it does so many other people? Yeah, it does. But that, but that. As far as the judicial system is concerned, that's more or less irrelevant. Um, and, and whether whether or not it should be is, is another conversation. Sure. Uh, I think the other thing, just in terms of guidelines as well, to note is that in 2006, the, the Supreme Court struck down the mandatory guideline system that had been put in place in the mm-hmm. Sentencing Reform Act in 1984. And so uh, and, and that, that spawned a whole series of Supreme Court cases that have... Um, mostly defang the guideline system in federal court. And so in some ways, state guidelines in the states that have uh, uh, guidelines are, are, are more uh, relevant mm-hmm. than the guidelines today. The, the, different, the, the, the exception to that is that 
mandatory minimums, um, mandatory minimum sentences in federal courts still stand. Mm-hmm. And so those those are not just a guideline; they are they are a, a statutorily required minimum. The other thing is that judges are still required to calculate the guidelines on the record. Uh, if you go to federal court to a sentencing, the judge will uh, give will outline in detail their their guideline calculation and then give the sentence in months required by the guidelines and then have to explain their upward or downward departure. Yeah, yeah. And um, so it becomes this baseline where the guidelines are sort of presumptively fair, and the Supreme Court has nothing to say about that. And so it has inched up the sentences in, in federal court and in the states that have, uh, that have sentencing guidelines. Yeah. Uh, what, what role do you feel like this plays in the larger conversation about over-incarceration? I mean, that, that is one of the things that, that I think lurks in the background of all of this is that there are, there are far more people uh, in prison in this country than uh, per capita than, than other countries, uh, certainly any other Western country, and that the system has been sort of, uh, I guess, turned toward favoring that kind of uh, behavior. How does someone like Kwame and his sentence sort of fit into that narrative or not? Yeah, so I think the first thing, before, before I answer your question, I think there's a, just a quick note of history to give, which is mm-hmm. that the, the, I think we are so used to the idea of time as punishment now that we forget that this was really a new invention. It came out of, it came out of the Quaker community in Philadelphia in the 1800s. The idea of, of sitting and sort of being with your sin as a way of, of coming to... Um, uh, kind of a, you know, a reconciliation with the divine, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. we then sort of secularized. And, but, the, but the use of time as a punishment is really kind of bizarre. These things are, you know, and Kwame is a little bit of an exception in this, but the, these, these transgressions that people are behind bars for mostly happen in instant. And then the punishment we have is to take away, you know, months or years of a person's life. And, you know, I think there's, there's sort of a fundamental... There's an incongruity. I don't know there, if it's a right. disconnect, but, yeah. but there's, there's sort of a fundamental tension there where, you know, punishment for, for hundreds, thousands of years was instantaneous and it was usually corporal. Um, and then we decided, again, we sort of this, this Quaker influence out of Philadelphia to, to use nonviolent time uh-huh. as a punishment. Uh-huh. And so, so that leads to over incarceration. I mean, that, like, that there is no over incarceration without incarceration. There's no incarceration without this idea we have that, that the removal of time and freedom from someone's life is somehow the appropriate way to punish. And I, I don't know if that's right or not, but I think we have to sort of start there. And then the next question is, okay, well, how much time? And, and again, it, for the most part, crimes happen in a moment. And, and so a, attaching a time to a punishment is, it's going to, it's going to be a little arbitrary. And so we don't know really what it means, I think, when we say, oh, this is worth, you know, six months of your life or 10 years of your life or 28 years of your life. Right. I just don't think we, it's, a, it's an abstraction. It's further abstracted by the fact that courts are required to give um, their sentences in months, right. which once you get past 24 or 36 months, I think for most people is a pretty abstract number. Yeah. You know, so when, when Kwame was sentenced, they didn't say 28 years. They said, however, I can't even do the math in my yeah, head I right now, however many months that is. Right. Yeah. You know? And I don't think people, it, it just further abstracts 
the punishment from what it actually is. Yeah. Yeah. Matthew Van Meter, author and teacher at the College for Creative Studies, written about the overly punitive nature of federally, federal sentencing law. It's currently at work on a book about a 1968 Supreme Court case. Thank you very much for being here on Detroit Today. Yeah, thanks so much, Stephen. Yeah. Uh, and I now want to talk to one more person about uh, this issue. Uh, Mike Riggs uh, recently wrote, or I should say in 2013, wrote a, a, a story in City Lab. That was titled, Why Kwame Kilpatrick Should Not Serve 28 Years in Prison. And one of the quotes from that article, I'll start with that, is, There's no question Kilpatrick broke the law, disgraced his office, and screwed over Detroit. But locking him up for 28 years is a ludicrous solution. For starters, it's a waste of resources. Taking into account modest cost increases over the course of Kilpatrick's sentence, it's fair to say he'll cost taxpayers at least another half million and possibly more. That's a lot of money. Not to mention the federal prison system is 40% over capacity. So Kilpatrick will also be taking up space that could and should be used for violent felons. Mike Riggs, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. Uh, that's a pretty controversial stand, I think, to take, the idea that uh, that Kwame Kilpatrick's sentence was outsized and inappropriate. Uh, tell me what led you what led you to that conclusion. Uh, it's a general awareness, um, which, you know, I don't want to say just like fell from the sky. I've been working on criminal justice issues for the last decade as a journalist and uh, as a lobbyist as well, uh, briefly. Uh, we, we just, we put a lot of people away for a really long time. Yeah. And we have, we're not even sure why. The average person cannot tell you why they think someone should spend 10 years versus 10 days in prison. Uh, the, the rule of thumb that I use is that prison should be for people we're scared of and not people we're mad at. Uh, and that saying, uh, if you break the law, we're locking you up shows a profound lack of imagination about the different ways in which we can both uh, let individuals know as a society that we're disappointed in their behavior and uh, also direct them towards something that is more productive. Yeah. Yeah. And and what what would that what would that look like? I mean, if, if we go back to the time when this was taking place, I, I can remember that palpable feeling of betrayal and anger that people had here in the city of Detroit. How, how could you direct that in a way that would that would deal with it in a different in a different way and a more productive way? I mean, first off, I, I don't think that uh, some prison time for Kwame was a bad idea. Uh, you know, there's definitely, when you have a public official betray the public trust the way he did, most people want some symbolic vengeance mm -hmm. on behalf of the community. Sometimes uh, I think you can extinguish that desire with a much shorter amount of time. Like, I would be very curious. I know you're talking to your listeners today and taking phone calls. I'd be very curious if you had done a survey uh, on the eve of Kwame's sentencing about what people wanted and how badly they wanted it, and you were to look at it today, I suspect that the feelings today are much milder and that they've been tempered. Um, and that he still you know, has, what, 23 years left, basically, yeah. um, maybe a little less than that with, with uh, the federal prison system's good time. But it's definitely 20, if, if not a little more. And so the question is, my thinking is, okay, let's say we were to say to Kwame, you're done today. 
you know, you, you've done five years or on the eve of uh, on the five year anniversary of his sentencing, you're done. Um, what could you ask of him? What kinds of restrictions could you put on his supervised release? Could you tell him that uh, he needs to, you know, he can't hold a job in which he's, uh, you know, has access to a company or or government's finances? Uh, could you tell him that uh, he needs to do five years of community service, but it needs to be a very specific type? Maybe it's working with uh, low-income families or at-risk kids. Can you garnish his wages for at a, some percentage for a certain period um, of his life, maybe the rest of his working life, uh, and have that go into some sort of uh, fund or foundation for the city of Detroit that, you know, worked on issues important to the city? Or I'm just saying, I mean, these are all kind of sort of spitballing things, but you can even tell just from spitballing, if you were just to ask the average person, what what could he do that would be good for Detroit? Right. Because him being locked away is not necessarily good for Detroit. It was very satisfying for a city that felt betrayed. Uh, but at some point, you need to ask, like, well, what's what's actually good for us? Yeah, it's almost uh, like because something being bad for Kwame for the rest of his life it doesn't really do anything. Yeah, it's almost as if we never ask that second question. What's What's next? Okay, Mike Riggs, uh, author of a 2013 article in City Lab called Why Kwame Kilpatrick Should Not Serve 28 Years in Prison. Thanks very much for being here on Detroit Today. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. All right, up next, we are going to talk with the prosecutor who handled the Kilpatrick case. Barb McQuaid is the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. We'll hear what she has to say about this question of punishment fitting the crime. And we'll hear from you. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about Punishment and crime, don't they sort of always fit together? Or do we always get the right punishment for the transgression that someone commits? We are talking about that specifically in the case of former Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick, who was sentenced to 28 years for the many things that he was convicted of. We're sort of also talking about it more generally. Is there something that we're missing when we think about what ought to happen to people who do wrong? And should they be given opportunities to make different kinds of contributions to society. Joining us now to continue that conversation is Barbara McQuaid. She is the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. She is now teaching at the University of Michigan, and she prosecuted Kwame Kilpatrick's case. Barb, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. Glad to be here. Yes, it's good to see you. Um, Let's just give you a chance to talk really quickly about what you think now that we're several years removed from this. Did Kwame Kilpatrick get what he deserved, or did he get more than what he deserved? And should we be thinking about dealing with cases like his in a different way? Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. You know, I'm teaching criminal law at the University of Michigan Law School now, right. and this is a topic we discuss with our students all the time. What are the purposes of sentencing? Why do we send people to prison anyway? And you've talked about some of those reasons, punishment, public safety, rehabilitation. But I think the one area that you haven't talked about that is really at the core of this case and any other white-collar crime case mm-hmm. is deterrence. Yes. 
deterrence is, is a specific to this defendant and also general to the public. People are watching. And if you want to prevent a crime like this, you need to take away something that is precious to them, and that is their liberty. Because uh, these kinds of crimes are often committed by wealthy people. Mm-hmm. If you just make them pay a fine, they'll, they'll consider it the cost of doing business and be on their way. And so to deter people who are in positions of power and people who have access to money, the only way you can really deter them is by giving them a meaningful sentence of imprisonment. Yeah. And I mean, that's an interesting way to, to think of it that, as you point out, we haven't uh, really talked about. But does that work? In other words, the fact that Kwame Kilpatrick is sitting in jail for 28 years, does that say to the next person or I mean, if we look at prosecutions even uh, here in southeast Michigan, is it saying that to people? Don't do this. Yeah, you'll never know what crime didn't get committed, but I hope so. You know, think about um, the way we all behave, uh, human nature, I think. You know, say, for example, when I came here uh, to, to this studio today, there may be a, sometimes a tendency for any of us to exceed the speed limit when we're uh, in a hurry. But when we see a police car, we slow down. Why? Because we don't want to get caught. We don't want to pay the price. I think similarly, people who are in public office uh, get tempted. Kwame Kilpatrick committed some very serious crimes uh, amounting to $83 million that really hurt the taxpayers of Detroit. Um, uh, And what would have stopped him if he had known someone was paying attention? I think he thought he could get away with it. And so I'm hopeful that going forward, politicians pay attention and know that law enforcement is paying attention. And if they cheat the public and abuse their position of trust, they will be caught and there will be a price to be paid. Yeah. Uh, When you think of that example, that kind of exampling, you know, we're going to make an example of this person so that this other person doesn't do those things. Is there room even in that? Uh, scenario in that context to think differently about what the the punishment should be. So 28 years in prison means he has no opportunity to either make right what he did wrong or make a different kind of contribution to this community that could also serve as an example to to other people. Uh, is that does that figure into your 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 calculations yeah of, of course so you know so we, we there's punishment and then the question is then how much punishment you know in a case like this in the federal system uh, the sentence is guided by sentencing guidelines they're advisory they're not mandatory right. and we could talk about mandatory minimums which are a different issue sure. with regard to drug cases and others which i do believe contributes to a problem of mass incarceration in america but this was a discretionary sentence mm-hmm. the judge started with sentencing guidelines which were calculated, by the way, to life in prison because they get mostly triggered by the amount of money involved in the fraud. And right. so here, the guidelines for Kwame Kilpatrick were actually life. Even we agreed that that was too high. And so then how do you figure out what's the right number? And so one way you do that is another goal of sentencing is to provide some uniformity around the country. So we looked for comparable cases. And the most comparable one we could find that we brought to the attention of the court was a county commissioner out of the Cleveland area named Jimmy DeMora, who had engaged in very similar but not quite as egregious conduct. And he was sentenced to 28 years, which is sort of where that number came from uh, for the judge to kind of figure out, well, life does seem too harsh, uh, but what might be the appropriate number, which is how I think she ultimately got to 28 years. Yeah. Uh, we've only got uh, a couple of minutes left, but but you, you bring up these other comparisons that you were trying to make to try to figure out what made sense. I've heard people bring up other cases. Rod Blagojevich, for instance, uh, in the in the state of Illinois, former governor, actually former neighbor of mine when I lived in, in Chicago. Uh, you know, he, he sells Barack Obama's Senate seat and he doesn't get quite as much time. 
There's another former governor of Illinois uh, who's also in, in prison. They seem to have a problem with that there, um, who, who's, whose sentence wasn't quite the same either. And people say, well, well that seems unfair. These people did uh, particularly egregious things. How come they don't? They don't do that. Yeah. Um, so I, I could probably distinguish each of those cases in terms of the pervasiveness of the conduct. Kwame Kilpatrick's conduct went on for many, many years and involved a number of different schemes. Mm-hmm. Although the scheme to sell Barack Obama's Senate seat was extremely egregious, it was one scheme, and Kwame Kilpatrick engaged in a number of others. My argument would be not so much that Kwame Kilpatrick got too much time, but that some of those others didn't get <laughs> didn't enough. Didn't get enough, right. <laughs> Spoken like a true prosecutor. <laughs> uh, okay, Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, now teaching at the University of Michigan, and prosecuted the Kilpatrick case. Uh, final question, and we've only got about a minute. Have we learned anything as a community, do you think, from 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 Kwame's sentence? Not just deterrence, but what does it tell us uh, as as a community? I, I think that this community says we're not going to take it anymore. You know, you see this hashtag Me Too movement where people finally speak out and say enough's enough. I heard people say, well, everybody, uh, all the politicians in the history of Detroit have done the same thing he did. And only, you know, why, why are we punishing him? That seems unfair. Because I think this community has said enough's enough. We're not going to tolerate this from our leaders anymore. And so I hope that's the takeaway. Okay. All right. Uh, That's going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. Detroit Today is produced by Laura Weber Davis and Jake Neer. The program director is Joan Isabella. The technical director and engineer is Matthew Chavethan. Our associate producers are Gus Navarro, Aaron Allen, and Ziad Butch. Detroit Today's theme song was composed by WDET's Sam Bobian. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, community service of Wayne State University. I will see you tomorrow.